Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It's hard for me to pinpoint where and when my eating disorder began. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. He just couldn't sense that I was hopeless. You get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. I began rereading my diaries and actually it enabled me to grieve for the little girl that got horribly lost and I just wanted to take her hand and help her get get out of that terribly dark forest that she was lost in for so many years. You're enough, you're more than enough, and you will always be enough. My eating disorder started at seven. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge, and your daughter's not there. There is hope at endad.org.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the incredible Nikki Matthews with me. Thank you so much for joining me, Nikki. I can't wait to have a chat with you and um, yeah, share some stories. So like me, Nikki is a Kiwi and she describes herself as sunshine mixed with a little hurricane, which I love. At 40 (laughs) years old, she has overcome a raging eating disorder to become the first age group female in the 2021 NZ Ironman and the fourth in her age group at the Ironman World Championships. She balances full-time work with full-time training whilst doing what she can to inspire others and showing that while we often doubt ourselves, our potential is infinite. I love that. I love what you said there about, you know, because we do, we doubt ourselves all the time, whether it's career, whether it's around, you know, eating disorder related things, whether it's around relationships, we're constantly in that space of doubting ourselves. And so I love what you've said about our potential being infinite because it's so true. It is, and I think um, I think it was the biggest thing that kind of I guess fueled my eating disorder is the whole just the doubting who you are and um, your abilities and what you can offer and even you know having a voice you, you even doubt that as well and I think it's just over time you learn actually um, it's all very valid and there are so many people out there that are also experiencing the same thing of doubt but they just they have the courage to talk or, or, you know, try new things. And, and no one actually really knows what they're doing, <laughs> to be honest. Um, when, when you, when you, you, as you get older, you kind of go, actually, no one really has a clue. We're all navigating life and testing and learning as we go. But, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's definitely, definitely self-doubt. It's massive. Well, life is just one big learning experience, isn't it? We're constantly garnering more experiences which give us more tools and give us more inner knowledge that we can then use for the next stage of our journey. Yeah, exactly. And even now I would say that I'm still learning and I'm still testing out theories, so to speak, that I have either about myself or about the world. And definitely still, life is definitely still a learning curve. Yes, yeah. Probably always will be, I think. Yeah, it keeps, it keeps it interesting. Okay, yeah. so let's dive in. I want you to give our listeners an insight into your journey with your eating disorder. Yeah, 
I started, um, I guess, focusing on my weight and what I was eating when I was around 15. And I guess at that time, um, at school, you were also kind of, um, I went to an all-girls school, which quite small as well. So, you know, I had like 20 people in my class. And I guess when you have all-girls in a small environment, that can be um, quite challenging in itself. There's just not that balance of, you know, the male. And at that point of time at school, you're kind of needing to sort out what you want to do with your life and what subjects you want to take in order to what university you're going to. And so I felt a lot of pressure around I needed to know what I wanted to do. Um, I needed to know that I was okay, what I was, you know, my future, what that meant. Um, there was also a lot of, I realise now it was kind of bullying, although I hate that term, but I guess with, with females, bullying is quite different to males. And obviously, you know, we we, we're accustomed to seeing kind of physical nature in terming that bullying, where I think in females it's very um, it's very underhanded and very manipulated, and it's things like you know being ostracised, um, you know the nasty comments, that those little things that kind of often go unnoticed but still stick with you. So a lot of that was happening to me at that time. So I had all that going on, and I guess I just started to focus more and more on my food because it allowed me to block out what was happening to me outside, like all that, all the kind of bullying and the pressure. I was able to kind of kind of ignore that by focusing on my, my eating. And then slowly it became a little bit of a game of how less I could eat. And then I would kind of give myself congratulations if I didn't eat a certain thing or more weight that I dropped. So I was giving myself the reward that I wasn't getting outside um, from other people and it was also you know my way of shielding myself as well again not listening to what was happening on the outside world because I had me and my eating disorder and I guess it just got worse and worse from there in terms of I just ate less and less the bullying got more I just wanted to also disappear from the world and the best way to do that is to kind of not eat and shrink um, but oddly enough as you do that you actually stand out more so that's kind of how how I started and and it got worse. And when I was in my last year at school, I was in the mental hospital quite a bit and was seeing psychiatrists and also getting help at that time. But obviously, no one really knew how to handle it, and it was it was very much the comments of just eat, you know, why aren't you eating? Um, it was still very focused around that instead of the underlying kind of what was triggering me to want to do that. And the journey kind of lasted a very long time. So I went, I ended up going to Melbourne for treatment for two years at an outpatient clinic. And my mum and I lived there. My dad and my brother stayed back in New Zealand. And then after that, I came back and was kind of okay, physically a lot better. Went back into uni and went back into the workforce. And I think that just presented more challenges that I wasn't able to cope with and didn't have the tools to deal with. So resorted back to my eating disorder as a way to cope and then went downhill again and went to Dunedin in New Zealand as an inpatient for two years as well and then spent some time there getting better, so to speak, in inverted commas. I physically put on weight but mentally I wasn't 100% cured but came out of came out of there physically better and worked on myself with some help from psychiatrists, but by then I think I'd spent like 
10, 15 years being psychiatrists and I pretty much knew what they were going to say and I didn't see much point in seeing them. It was very much became a time that I needed to work on myself using the tools that I've learned to just move through life. And I, and I slowly did that, had some ups and downs, but never had to go back into treatment, which was good. So I would say that I was from about 15 to 30 that I was in a dark, dark hole of eating disorder. So very similar duration to to my journey with anorexia as well. Now you you know you had to come over to to Australia for treatment, and yeah. that was because of the inadequate services available in New Zealand, wasn't it? Yeah, there was. So you'd, I mean, we went to the um, went to the New Zealand Eating Disorder Services, and from what I believe and understand, not much has changed even now. As I know, people have gone into the same system. And unfortunately, there's just no real understanding of how to deal with the disease. It focuses very much on the physical nature and just feeding you to put on weight and then you're cured and then you're out of the system. They weren't, they were also more interested at that point in time of talking to my parents and my brother rather than talking to myself, which was very odd. They also really wanted to pigeonhole you and put you in a box and what you learn with this disease, and I'm sure many of your listeners, there's, there's, so, there's so many iterations of an eating disorder in terms of what's your triggers and what's the underlying reason, and just to pigeonhole you and go, oh, you wanted control, so yours is all about control, and that's what we're going to deal with. It's like, well, no, I had many other triggers, and if we don't kind of find them all and find ways to deal with them, then they're going to keep being triggers. And I guess the public system just is not willing and is uneducated to be able to deal with that. I couldn't agree with you more. And like you and I have both spoken about, um, you know, I believe that. So I got first um first got unwell twenty years ago, and I don't believe that there has been change since then. I mean, I hear it firsthand. People are going into yeah. the same places, getting the same the same you know completely inadequate, not. Uh, as you say, just not understanding the nuances of eating disorders and the fact that it is so much more than just weight gain. It's got to be a holistic wraparound thing. And as I always say, eating disorders tailor themselves to, you know, the individual. And so therefore treatment also needs to be tailored to the individual as well. You cannot put someone with an eating disorder into a box tick that box and go, right, well, therefore you will get this treatment. And if it doesn't work, we'll just keep doing it again and again and again, hoping that it will. A hundred percent. And then the, the sufferance, um, like myself, you just end up feeling, you just feel so guilty and you feel like a complete failure because it's like you're just going back into the system, back into the system, back into the system. And it's like, well, you know, you already feel awful. You already feel like a failure. You already feel guilty for what's happening. The last thing you need is people in the system telling you, you know, that you've basically failed and you need to go back. And it's like, well, actually, maybe it's the system that, that's failing me because how many times do I need to come back? Yes, I have the problem, but you're not helping me deal with it. Yet you say you're the expert. And I think you only realize that as you get older that people that are, that are so-called experts are actually not experts in the eating disorder field. They may be nurses with a medical background or they may be doctors, but they are not experts in the eating disorder field which is so different like I've had recently friends go back into hospital with an eating disorder and they were literally in there for four days they were fed food and sent away again and it's like well 
that's not treating anything. If anything, she knew what she needed to do to get out of hospital. It was just eat the food and smile, and then she's out. And it's just it's just sad to see because at the end of the day, she's not getting the help that she needs, and she's still struggling. Hmm. Oh, I hear it every day, and it breaks my heart because you and I both know that that is never going to work. And we all know how to play, play the system. We can do that very well. 100%. Like, you know, it's one of the things that eating disorders are best at is running rings around therapists and, uh, you know, absolutely manipulating things to its own advantage. And I think that's where the value of lived experience is just so, so important because we've we've lived it and we've breathed it literally and so yeah. we can see right through all of those smoke and mirrors and we know yeah. what works and what doesn't and yeah. I, I think obviously there's an absolute place for all of the clinical stuff and we need the psychologists the psychiatrists the dietitians the therapists we need yeah. them absolutely but there's also within a multidisciplinary team the the value of lived experience in some way, whether it's as a recovery coach, whether it's a peer support worker, whether it's a social worker with lived experience, the value of having that lived experience input in there cannot be underestimated. It's 100% true. When I went to Australia, it was um, actually the best clinic I've ever been to. It was just, unfortunately, it was it was privately funded by my parents. So um, obviously you can't stay there for, forever and go through the journey but um, what I learned there was very much it was an outpatient clinic but you would go there in the morning and I'd have um, you know breakfast or morning tea and kind of spend the day there doing activities with other people mixing with other people would also go out into the community and you know go to the shops or go for a walk or go for the cafe and therefore we would get experiences in those situations and mixed with I guess challenging and kind of meetings with other people and I got a job when I was there as well which was kind of encouraged so that I could learn some of the tools and I guess if you just focus on if they just focused on the eating side you know I'd still be in the same position without the tools to cope with the challenges of life where they kind of put you in the community and step by step so it was safe all the way but they taught you the skills along the way of you know how to deal with it you know if you asked for something at the cafe and you wanted something slightly different than what was in the menu that you had the courage to ask for that or you know if you were charged wrong that you could have the courage to say something you know it's just those tiny little things that we have no no courage in and then no one really understands but it's having those experiences and that voice that really starts to build the self rather than just oh congratulations you ate a cracker today you can move on to lunch like <laughs> It's quite frustrating when I hear it's all focused on food rather than the lived experience. I couldn't agree more in terms of the life skills. It's so, so essential. And so often we see that there's this massive gap between being in inpatient care or fully wrapped in, um, you know, getting outpatient services and then disengaged or discharged from treatment. And then it's like, right, well, off you go then. Yeah. You you don't understand that when you have an eating disorder, the basic things of life that people take for granted, like grocery shopping, like being able to go out for a cafe, like ordering something off a yeah. menu, uh, yeah. <laughs> all of those things are so incredibly um, scary and we need help in cooking, portioning meals, yeah. being able to yeah. put oil in a pan. 
Oh, I know. Yeah. Things we need support with. And yeah. it's absolutely essential. And we, we know, I mean, we look at we look at the USA and we look at all the residential facilities over there and you know, what's going to be replicated at, at Wandi Nerida um, here on the Sunshine Coast as well. And we know that those yeah. things are so essential to someone's sustained recovery because otherwise yeah. you go home and you just pretty much have a freak out. And whereas if yeah. it's a nice staged transition or step transition, then it's a much different experience for the individual. A hundred percent. It's just like, yeah, you do say like the oil in the pan. It's those little things that looking back now, I was, you know, I would freak out. Like before you would have meals prepared for you, they were the right size. It was, everything was done for you. And all you had to do was focus on eating and you really needed that. There's a time and place for that. And then you need to learn once you get, you know, past that and, then you need to learn to kind of feed yourself in terms of how much you put on your plate and what's acceptable because I know that when I used to do that by myself, when I came out of treatment, those portions I plated myself got smaller and smaller and then all of a sudden I wasn't putting things on my plate because I didn't think I needed them because I still had that mindset, you know, about whatever had happened in the day, I, I felt a bit shitty, so I really didn't need that portion of whatever on my plate. Yeah, so 100%. It's all about that that steps that steps recovery process, which is com- completely missing in New Zealand, especially. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Although very excitingly, uh, Christy Amadio at the moment uh, is about to. Well, she is in the, in the midst of establishing um, a clinic down south that will be doing that uh, with her recovered living. So I'm very very excited to see to see that happening. That's so there awesome. is hope, but. Uh, we need a lot more of those sorts of facilities around the country. Yeah, we do. To, yeah. In order for that to happen. But, you know, we've got to look at the positives. We are moving forward in some areas, which is fantastic. I just think the fact that we're talking about it and there's like your podcast, that is just more open. Um, and like even myself, I was recently on TVNZ telling, which is, a you know, the national television in New Zealand, just telling my story and then turning up at work, work the next day because they had no idea. And getting the response from work, which was, that was really brave of telling your story and thank you and people reaching out. And it's like, it's just, um, I'm not ashamed of my story. I'm more about, I want people to understand that, yes, that's what I have been through, but look what I have achieved afterwards. Therefore, you don't need to pigeonhole me or treat me with kid gloves. I'm, I'm, I've learned a lot and I'm more than capable. And that kind of want to remove the stigma around eating disorders as well which is kind of why I, I talk about it. I mean, I don't introduce myself as, hi, I'm Nikki, I've had an eating disorder, but it's certainly a massive part of my story that I'm not afraid to share when I... Oh, look, I'm exactly the same, Nikki, and uh, it's actually really interesting that, that you bring that up now because I did an um, article with the New Zealand Herald yesterday and um, someone said to me, have you seen the comments online on Facebook? I uh, had a l- little look this morning and I hadn't. I don't generally read comments and it's just incredible yeah. people, what people say, you know, in terms yeah. of... You know, it just basically increases people's shame around it. And I felt so strongly that I did respond to someone and say, you know, I am absolutely not ashamed of my journey in any way, Uh shape or form. It has made me who I am today. I'm incredibly proud that I fought to get my life back. And that's exactly why um, I have dedicated my life to helping others 
who are still in the trenches because the more that we stand up and talk about our stories, the less that shame and stigma is yeah. allowed to fester and grow. You know what I mean? It grows in silence. It grows in the shadows. If we bring eating disorders into the light and it's absolutely commonplace to talk about them and share our experiences, then that shame and stigma will slowly but surely go away and we will get more people. There's a frightening statistic at the moment that 40% of people with an eating disorder don't reach out because of shame and stigma. Yeah. And that's got to change. Absolutely. And I think, oddly, I think the one thing that this eating disorder kind of gave me was a fight. (laughs) So it really really grew inside me that fight for life. So I kind of come out with a great, I guess, fighting attitude. And and I guess that's why, you know, I do Ironman and and I fight my way through that and I fight my way through sessions. And it's all kind of, you know, and I, and I hear your feedback around, you know, the feedback that you're getting online. It's like, I want to stand up and fight for that. And I guess that's what the eating disorder has given me, a stronger sense of, no, we need to fight for things and we need to stand up and you need to be heard um, and have your voice. Um, whether that changes anything or not, that kind of doesn't matter. You just need to be able to have your voice and have, have your impact and then you see where it goes. Absolutely. What did it feel like to you to have an eating disorder? Like, what did it feel like internally when you're in the midst of the battle? When I was really sick, I I honestly just felt completely completely lifeless. Like my just my soul had been sucked out from inside me. Yeah, I mean, I found it very hard to even just hold my head up, let alone smile or find joy in anything. It was, you know, I would sometimes go to bed at night wondering whether I'd wake up in the morning and part of me would wish I would die in my sleep because it would just be easier for everyone but like I say there's also that fight in me that for some reason was like no 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 you're not you're gonna you're gonna live to fight another day and I guess it was that little bit that just got stronger and stronger but when you're in the depths of an eating disorder that you honestly you know there were I'd be showing, you know, this person has recovered or that person has recovered. You can be like them, just keep trying. And I think it just makes you feel guiltier actually when that happens because you're like, you look at that person, you're like, there's no way. I don't, I don't see hope for me. I, I don't see that for me. But it was, it's more about for me listening to others' journeys or reading about others', others journeys than it was seeing someone and, and connecting with that story and knowing that there's actually no timeline. So whether someone recovered in one year, two years, 10 years, 15 years, it's your journey and you just need to hold on and be patient that there's going to be so many challenges that come your way and some of them you'll conquer straight away and others it will take some time because you just need to build that trust and belief and you can't put a timeline on that. I think that was the hardest thing when you're so deep in it, you're just it's all-consuming. I really, really agree with you on the no timeline thing. Constantly telling clients that recovery has no timeline. Don't compare yourself to somebody else's uh, rate of recovery because it is all so individual. And also, when you come out the other side of the eating disorder, life has no timeline either. So don't then feel disheartened that, you know, everybody's married with children and you're 
still figuring out how to live independently, that doesn't matter because everything happens for a reason. And, you know, life does not have a timeline. So I'm really thrilled that you've said that as well. It definitely doesn't. Like, the, the funny thing is I look at my life my life now and I'm in my, well, I've turned, just turned 40 and I just won Ironman New Zealand as an age grouper and thinking, look at not only all the younger people that I managed to, to beat, but all the men. And it's like, it, 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 it's just like, it doesn't, um, there is no age, there is no time. It's just you and what you want to focus your energy on. And you kind of, I kind of, yeah, I don't, I don't have a family and I don't, you know, having children is not, is not part of my journey, but I am certainly a very proud auntie and I don't feel, I've actually never felt any pressure to have kids from my family, but there is certainly a society expectation to have your life sorted. And that's what I meant when I was 15. And, and, and when I first started my eating disorder, there was an expectation at that time to be, okay, well, what are you going to study at uni? What are you going to do when you leave? What job are you going to get? And people around me had timelines of when they were going to get married and had kids. And I felt like such a complete failure of having no idea what I wanted to do. And I think the biggest thing that adults can do is just allow that discovery of what it is that you want to do to just happen in its own time and, and not force it. That doesn't mean sitting around and not getting a job. It means having those experiences, but not necessarily needing to know what you need, what you want to do for the rest of your life. I couldn't agree more because it's that, that pressure and that which then for me turned to fear about what if I make yep. the wrong decision. If I make the wrong 100%. decision, then what's going to happen? And, you know, the the one thing, and, and that feels out of control, right? So then the one thing that we yep. can control is let's go back to the eating and exercise because we know we can do that. Yep. That's, our, that's our jam. We got that. We got that down pat. So let's just focus on that. That's the one thing, yep, that I can control, that I know I can do well, that, yeah, it will protect me from whatever other expectations that are happening on me from other people. It's, it's all good. I've got this. Um, if, you, if you think that, back to those days, what purpose do you think your eating disorder was serving for you? Like what needs was it meeting? It was very much, and it, 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 I find it so hard to explain, and I guess that's, I guess that's whole part of getting, getting help when you have an eating disorder is not knowing how to explain it, but... I think for me it was very much around just protecting me because if I could focus on the food, what was in food, what I would eat, what I wouldn't eat, how I would avoid meals, what I would do that day, but the exercise if I could, if I focused on that, then I at least very little room for kind of all the bullying that was happening outside at me, things of like, you know, not being invited to parties or being ostracized from school groups or being teased for, you know, the marks they got on projects, um, being being left out of, of things at school. I was like, well, if I focus on this whole food world, there's no room for me to think about those things. And then also, if I, you know, was losing weight, I could also self-congratulate as well. So if I wasn't getting positive reinforcement from, from anyone outside, I could give that to myself because I was doing something good. I did have something under control. I was succeeding in some area, um, and that was weight and food. So it very much served that purpose for me. And I guess as you go through, through life and even out of school, you still 
I think as an eating disorder person, you're very empathetic and you're, you're very sensitive to other people. So I would take on board a lot of other people's problems and turn them into my problems because I wanted to solve them for them. And that, that became all encompassing as well. I resonate with so much of that. <laughs> How did it affect your family? So my brother's four years younger than me and I had mum and dad. Um, so obviously my brother really had no clue why I wasn't eating. Like, I guess I I couldn't explain it, so I couldn't tell tell him either. So he was just kind of at a loss, of, you know, four years younger and I was 15, so he was 11. He really had no clue what was going on other than I was quite sick and mum and dad were very angry at me. And of course the tension between my parents and myself grew quite a lot because their focus obviously was to see me well and trying to get me to eat and there'd be fights at the dinner table. I mean, oddly enough, I would take food to school and I don't know why, but I wouldn't throw it out at school, I'd bring it home. Well, it's the stupidest thing ever. Just just throw it away and no one would ask a question, but I would bring it home for some reason and until later on I learned to kind of throw it out. So there were all those fights, you know, why didn't you eat your food? And it's just, there was so much tension, so much anger, and my dad is, is not one to kind of confront conflict. So it was similar away for ages with him, and then he would blow. So my mum would feel like she was the only one tackling the problem because my dad would kind of be like, no, she'll be all right. She'll, she'll eat it. Just let it go. Just let it go. It's fine. And then he'd blow up, but it'd be take a month where my mum every day would kind of get very, very, very angry and frustrated and feel like it was only her. And sometimes when we'd go out in public, it would be me and my mum, you know, might go out to the shops and my mum would get abused in the street from strangers saying things like, you know, what are you doing taking your kid out? She's dying. Make her eat and just throw abuse at my mum. And it was just horrible. And I'm just standing there next to my mum going, hello, I'm not invisible. I'm right here. Um, I had the exact same thing happen and it is the most horrific like I remember each instance when it happened I just remember exactly where I was you know almost down to what I was wearing wearing um, yeah because it's like it is the most almost out of body experience when you're literally standing right by your mum and your mum is being you say it was i uh, like young, you know, twenty-year-old boys say, say to mum, "Oh, like, yeah, like, d- stop starving your daughter. Like, give her a sandwich, or you know, yeah. things like that. Or just when they would stop and stare, just you yeah. know, turn around to just stare. And yeah, just, yeah, horrible. And the funny thing was, I always covered up when I went out. So I would wear long, long pants, long tops. So I was never exposed. The only thing that was exposed was really my face. And then you'd, you'd people would stop and stare and point and you're just like, I've covered up as much as I can. I'm sorry that I offend you so much. And then inside you're just like, I might as well just die. I might as well not be here. Like if I'm offending people by just being alive, which really hurt my mom. And of course I internalized it. Um, and it, it's a very horrible experience and people, I don't think really understand what they're doing. And if they do understand, I don't understand why they're doing it then. It's just, I mean, do they do they stop and point to people with, you know, in a wheelchair? That's just become normal. You know what I mean? People with a physical disability. Well, it's the same thing. This person has a mental disability. Do you stop and stare and point and then throw abuse at them? It's oh, not acceptable. Exactly. It's horrific. I remember um, an instance where my mum was just like, you know, if my daughter had cancer, 
and exactly. you know, lost weight yeah. from uh, you know having to do chemotherapy, then you wouldn't be judging me as a mother. Yes. the judgment cha- the judgment certainly is removed or changes. But the minute you have something that supposedly you can control, and I think that the misconception with the general public is that you've chosen not to eat, so surely you can just choose to eat. And it's getting that message across and understanding across that it's actually when you're in the depths of it, you actually don't have a choice. There's, there's a stronger voice inside of you telling you all the reasons why you shouldn't eat. And if, if, imagine someone sitting on your shoulder telling you how worthless you are, how undervalued you are, that no one cares, that no one loves you. And not just those things, but you also have a bank full of evidence in your head about why you're worthless and why people don't love you and all these negative things. You you have built up this evidence. So it's like it's going, you know, imagine someone sitting there telling you that constantly 24-7. Would you feel like eating? Probably not. You'd probably, you'd probably just want to end it right there. And that's what you're trying to get across to people that, you know, I don't have a choice because imagine listening to this all day. And I think with recovery, it's very much about creating a new story so that all those negatives no longer dominate. But, but that, that's what I say, it takes time. Yeah, time is a big healer uh, for so many yeah. things, but very much for eating disorders as well. Were there moments where you did feel just absolutely hopeless? And, and if there were in those moments, how did you keep that hope alive? There definitely moments. I mean, like I said, I would sometimes go to bed at night wondering if I'd wake up. I was on bed rest and I was in wheelchairs thinking, <laughs> will I ever, well, I was told I would never walk again, let alone breathe again, and my heart's going to give up. And at that point, you kind of like, you know you know how sick you are. But, you know, people telling you you're going to die didn't really make any difference to me. No, um, I, 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 yeah, it's like that whole, I, I've heard a quote that logic doesn't heal trauma, and it's so true. It's like, telling me I'm going to die is not going to make me eat. It's just going to make me feel more worthless for not eating. And to be honest, I don't, I don't know what made me hold on. It was just that some that little voice that was still Nikki, that was still there, going, "Nah, you you, you can do better. You, you can fight this. This isn't. This is not you. This is not you." And it was, you know, I would. There weren't podcasts back in the day. That was very much more like reading stories or articles about people that had recovered or people's journeys um, that I would connect with and go, well, this is what they did or this is what got them through that day. Maybe I'll try that. Or, I mean, it wasn't necessarily people with eating disorders either. It was people with other mental illnesses that I would read about. And, you know, they may have had a quote that resonated with me. So I'll think about that quote that day. And it's just finding those little things from wherever just to keep it going. Yeah, I was very, very much the same. Upon reflection, was there a particular catalyst or turning point for you in your recovery? So I think my recovery is, I, well, I don't actually know if it's unusual because I, I don't know of others' recoveries, but when I left Dunedin, that was an inpatient clinic, basically near the, I was there for about two years and near the end of that I was getting really tired of being there in terms of frustrated, angry, and you'd get weighed every week and every time you put on weight, you got um, rewarded. So you would be allowed out on the weekend or you got to, you know, do things. So it kind of, 
I got to a space where, yeah, I was angry. I knew you got rewarded for putting on weight. So I just started eating to get out. And in that clinic, I, I started to secretly binge. So I managed to put on enough weight and I was discharged. So I would say I left that clinic still very much with an eating disorder mindset, but physically better. So when I left there, I guess I was I was just determined not to go back into that treatment centre. And I think between that and finding help outside of the clinic to, to get things right and going ups and downs with nutritionists outside the clinic and eventually finding some help, finding IMM was a massive help for me, although to start with it was very much a way to control my weight, but I moved through that phase, so now it's not. There wasn't really a turning point, it's just learning along the way, and at least I was physically well enough to be outside the clinic to be able to take those chances and learn along the way about how to deal with things with the help of others. So let's talk about Ironman a little bit. I mean, you say that it gave you the platform to prove to yourself that you were worth something, that you could get through anything and that nothing was impossible. Can you talk to me some more about the role that it played in, in your healing journey? Yeah, so I'll tell you what actually Ironman is in case <laughs> yeah, um, no one knows. But Ironman is, is basically a long-distance triathlon. So it's a 3.8K swim followed by a 180k bike ride and a 42k run. So a massive, massive day of um, racing. And originally that was never ever my plan, so I kind of fell into exercise when I was physically well enough as a way to control my weight. So I was eating, not knowing what to eat at that point, just all over the show, but at least I had exercise to help control what I was doing. It was through the gym that I met some people who were doing this thing called triathlon and Ironman. And so I started to join them in their training and I loved it because they were training a lot. Um, and that kind of fitted with me going, oh, well, awesome. It's a, it's a, I'm now with a group of people training a lot and so no one will question the amount of exercise that I'm doing. But unfortunately, I still got questions. <laughs> so... What I started to do was formalize my training more. So I decided to enter a small local race, an Olympic distance, which is a shorter race. And I soon learned in training for that, that this whole eating disorder and training really didn't have, wasn't really a good mix in terms of if you underfueled, you couldn't, you couldn't perform the exercise. If you binged and purged, that was that was freaking horrible. You just your heart rate was through the roof. You couldn't cope. So I soon learned that I really needed to fuel myself well if I wanted to do the triathlon. And yeah, so I did a few races, and then I ended up hooking up with a coach. And I just think through that journey of doing some races, enjoying it, getting a coach, learning the value of nutrition to to be able to do all that exercise was really good. I ended up getting a nutritionist to help me because I had no idea about what to eat to fuel my performance. And I ended up doing quite well in some races. And then that fueled my desire to be the best I could be. And in wanting to be the best you can be at something, you had, I had to nail the nutrition. It's a massive part of the sport. When you train 20 hours a week, you can't not fuel your body. So that's how it kind of came about for me in, in terms of starting off very eating disorder-like turned into something that 
would help me eat better. And then obviously, like I said, it's, it's a massive day of racing and you go into that race with so many doubts, so many fears about can I complete it, can I do it, what's going to happen, I don't, will I fail, will I come last? And running down that finish line gives you such a sense of accomplishment of, fuck, I did something so amazing that a few years ago I was told I'd never walk again. I was in a wheelchair, I was, you know, in bed and bed rest, and yet here I am doing the world's toughest endurance race. So it, it goes to show that, I guess, if you really want something and you've got a fight in you, just you build that fight. Is it something that you have to be sort of, I guess, on guard for in terms of making sure that it does remain, you know, what sounds to me like a really positive passion and, and so that it doesn't uh, go into being a detrimental obsession in any way? 100%. I think in the sport as well, there's very much a focus on numbers. So in terms of the power you're putting out on the bike, how fast you run, and there's also talk around race weight is quite prevalent. So getting down to a certain weight for racing to be the best you can be. And I've got trapped in that. And it's been pretty horrible again because it brings back all those memories of, you know, the eating disorder and what it was like in that space. So recently my partner and I have removed the um, batteries from the scales. So there's no weighing. There is a, a massive focus on fueling straight after session. So don't even really have time to think about it. Just get that protein shake down you or make sure you have that carbohydrate because if you want to do that run later on, that's what you're going to have to do. So it's very much having, I guess, relying on those around me to reinforce that, that this is what we need to do, because it can it, it can very easily slip back into eating disorder. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's great that you know, hey, this is what we're going to do, and, and are aware of it. Yeah. being aware of it is so, so important. I think it's being very self-aware, yeah. Have you come to a place of acceptance now with your body? I think there will always be a part of me that, and I, I don't know whether this is just me or a female thing, or just never being 100% happy with your body. There's always something you want to change. But on some really bad days, I can um, say some pretty horrible things about myself. And other days, I see myself as, well, God, I my body managed to get through that run. My body managed to push that power. So I don't really care how big I think my legs are. I I did that. So I think it's very much a mixed bag. I'm, I'm definitely, I don't know how much I weigh. So <laughs> it's no longer about getting to a happy weight. It's just being happy in myself. I love that. I love that. <laughs> it's so, so important. It's so important because ultimately that's what it's about. It's about how you're feeling and how full yeah. your life is. And I guess that, that where you certainly notice, you kind of go, oh, I'm fat today. And then I look at myself and I go, why am I feeling fat today? What's happened in my day that is making me feel fat? And that's either a confrontation at work or something I didn't quite get right. And that has made me feel fat rather than it actually being a truth of I put on 10 kilos overnight. It's very much a feeling. Yeah. And it's so important to stop and ask yourself, okay, what is this reflective of? Yeah. What actually happened? Mm. What? What's the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you? I think the most valuable thing that has taught me is that I actually am a lot stronger than I give myself credit for because 
and like I said, you just you spend all your life doubting your ability, doubting yourself that you miss out on a lot of opportunities because of the fear. Where the eating disorder has shown me that I would probably still have that doubt, but we'll we'll, we'll fight for it. We'll we'll fight for overcoming it, and um, I guess that that sort of that sort of given me that yeah, I am stronger than I actually give myself credit for. You sure are. You're incredible <laughs> all the things you achieve. In your opinion, what are the best ways people can support someone who's going through an eating disorder? So some of the things that I've learned that have kind of resonated with me from, from people helping is, especially my partner um, now, he always asks kind of, you know, what would be helpful right now? What can I do right now to help you? Rather than saying um, things like, well, what's the problem? very much turn it around to asking what will be helpful for you right now and knowing that that um, will always change given the situation. There's never going to be one right answer. The other thing is using that um, phrase we, so we will do this together rather than you're in it alone. Like it's, it's, it's a journey that you take together with someone rather than always feeling like you're going to be on your own. Another big thing for me, I think, is that um, having your feelings validated so people may not understand your fear around food or fear around, you know, doing something, but they don't. They don't need to disregard. They just need to validate it rather than saying, "Oh, I don't understand," or "That's just stupid," or just focus on the positive. It's like, no, validate my feelings to know that what I'm feeling is okay, even though you might not understand it. So I think that that's a massive one for me, and also not using the guilt to force behavioural changes. Because often when I was sick, I would be told, look what it's doing to everyone around you. You look how it's affecting your parents. Look how, you know, people can't stand to look at you. Do you not have no idea? And it's like, I'm already feeling horrible. I, I can see what I'm doing. I feel guilty. So this is actually not, you reinforcing that is actually not helping. And that, and that just comes back to, again, recognizing that every struggle is different. And it's the journey that we take together. And the things you can do is ask for what's helpful right now and just being patient as well. That don't put a timeline on it for me. And as much as I know that, you know, you, you hear other people, you know, it's been a year or two years and um, people around you kind of hang on to that going, oh, look, it only took them four years. You're almost there. And it's like, this is, <laughs> I might not meet that, that target that you have. So it's best not to have one. I also think it's really important that those around you that are supporting you also take time out for themselves because as a sufferer, you know how much it gets you down and how much it takes out of you and how tired you get from fighting every day. So those around you will also feel tired. So give them the space too to take some time out so that they can come back refreshed and ready to fight with you. It's a bit of a tag team effort sometimes, I think. Oh, absolutely. I always say to carers, you know, taking time out for self-care is not selfish, it's self-preservation. Yeah, and you learn that as you get better yourself as well, that you can't take on everyone else's problems either, that you've always been trying to fix and you need time yourself. So, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are still battling it out day in and day out to gain freedom from their eating disorder? Oh, words of wisdom. I've never never thought of myself as wise. What I would say is that when it gets really tough, take it hour by hour. 
because sometimes that's all you can do is focus on that hour and that's okay and nourish that little voice inside of you that you know is your voice just slowly nourish it start to feed it the good stuff and over time that voice will get louder and louder and louder and your eating disorder voice will start will start getting a bit recessive um will start getting drowned out and it's just about feeding feeding the good voice Yes, I love that. I um, It's just another way of talking about strengthening your healthy self, which I talk yeah. about all the time. And that's the goal of recovery is to get that to get that inner self, that soul self, healthy self, whatever you want to call it. Nourish yeah. that uh, 100%. where it is at the forefront and that eating disorder self isn't there in the driver's seat anymore. Yeah, exactly. Nikki, you are simply incredible. You're amazing. And I have loved chatting to you today. Um, I think it's really interesting. You know, our stories parallel in a number of ways. And, oh, I know. <laughs> and I am um, so proud of all the things that you've achieved in, in the Iron Man world. My goodness, I could never think about doing anything quite so intense as that. So, yeah, it's a real credit to to you that you've got yourself to a space where you can achieve things like that it's it's amazing and so yeah well done thank you (laughs) this is the end eating disorders podcast brought to you by lockaway self-storage and podspot your financial support will save lives donate at ended.org.au i always used to think like how can people not hear what's going on in my head 